This is Art Matters. I'm Farron Gibson. This podcast is brought to you by Art UK, the online home of the UK's public art collections. Find us online at artuk.org, where you can explore paintings, sculptures, stories, and more. You can also follow us on your social media channel of choice on artuk.org, spelling out the word dot. The Art Matters podcast series will be exploring a variety of artworks and styles as they relate to popular culture and our everyday lives. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Justin Bangry, who is a lecturer on queer history at Goldsmiths and convener of their MA in Queer History, which is the first of its kind. Justin spoke with me about some of the ways we can explore queer culture through modern British art, and he also talks through some of the fascinating coded imagery and 20th century illustrations. Looking at artwork through a queer lens brings up a lot of different ways we can think about art because what actually constitutes that queer lens? What is making our, our, our examination of the artwork queer? It could be that the artist identified themselves as queer in some way. It could be that we identify the artist now as queer in some way, um, regardless of uh, how they uh, identified themselves at the time because they often didn't have the terms, the, the categories themselves, and we, we think about them now in that way. It could be that queer people today see that art and it resonates in some way that's important to consider. Uh, there's a lot of ways of looking at it and, and not everyone's going to agree about those, but I think that actually makes it really quite interesting. Before we jump into that discussion, it would be good to address the use of the term queer and how it has changed over the years. It was a problematic term in the past, and for many people, it remains a problematic term. For a lot of people, it was a term of of insult and violence, and our use of it is problematic for them. Certainly, when I've uh, uh, spoken outside the academy, where it's it's very common, I'm often confronted with people who who find the term problematic and really challenge me on its use. And we have to be respectful that this still carries a lot of pain and a lot of power, negative power, against a lot of people. So it's good to have that said right up front. But all that being said, queer is really useful for a variety of ways. A lot of people today self-identify as queer. They, that, that's a really important way for them to define their own identity when they don't want to subscribe to other labels of lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, and, and, and others. For historians, though, queer is really important because it allows us to think about people and identities and experiences and ways of living in the world that don't map clearly onto how we understand sexual and gender identity today. Uh, there's lots of people in the past that l- might look kind of gay, they might look kind of lesbian through the, the records they leave behind, the stories that we have. But historians will always will always say that we have to uh, understand these people in the in the context of the periods in which they lived, and sometimes those categories don't really have meaning for them, and to impose those flat-footedly is problematic. So queer allows us to acknowledge that there's something non-normative about people in the past, about their sexual and gender identities, as we would say today, but that it isn't exactly like what we understand today as LGBT. In 2017, Tate Britain held an exhibition titled Queer British Art, 1861 to 1967, marking the 50th anniversary of the decriminalization of male homosexuality in England. The show featured work from queer artists such as Gluck and David Hockney, but it also included portraits of queer figures like the writers Oscar Wilde and Radcliffe Hall. 
Themes of love, playfulness, politics, and everyday life played out across the works on display. And when looking at works in any demographic of artists, it's important to share this breadth of subjects and imagery and be mindful of not painting any group of people with broad strokes. We can't homogenize the stories of so many different kinds of artists. A lot of a lot of queer artists are also really quite unremarkable artists, and the the, the art they left behind might be little more than pretty pictures. Um, some was much more transgressive, and of course, transgressive art is going to be riskier and is going to draw draw attention um, and and potentially negative attention. Uh, Radcliffe Hall, for instance, I mean, it was it was the publication of a book with more overt lesbian themes that drew negative attention from the press. Although there's a whole story behind that as well, that a lot of the press was actually relatively supportive early on. But I mean, this is also the difference between non-illegal female same-sex desire, and maybe it would have been different, uh, a novel about male same-sex desire, even if it was able to be published for that matter. But even in the case of Gluck, we have the, the famous medallion portrait of Gluck. Uh, and their partner, but a lot of Gluck's other work was was flowers and uh, Gluck's self portrait. As much as that's a striking, striking photo and potentially transgressive in dress, it's a little bit hard to tell. I'm looking at it right now. The 1942 portrait certainly, well, certainly in terms of self presentation, haircut, all these things, it's 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 more aligned with masculine conventions um, and transgressive. But not all of Gluck's work was so incredibly transgressive. And many queer artists, queer as they may be, don't necessarily create explicitly transgressive art. And sometimes the transgression in the art is coded. It's not, not, not able to be read by many, many people. It's very subtle uses of sight lines and suggestion and codings and, and sub-images and colors and and signals that many people are just not going to cotton on to. This idea of coded messaging is very interesting and can be seen in language as well. Justin told me about some examples of coded imagery that can be found in older British magazines and illustrations in the early 20th century. I think this is a really fascinating area of research. I've done a lot of work on the interwar men's magazine, uh, Men Only, uh, in, in the UK, which started in 1935. And what really struck me about it is that every single issue in the 1930s included what seemed to me very queer cartoons. Sometimes they were pretty explicit. I mean, it showed what, what people in the 30s would have known as pansies, effeminate men um, in the city, but it didn't make fun of them, really. It made them kind of the, the heroes of their stories, getting, getting one over on, uh, on other people. Uh, but sometimes the cartoons were more coded. So I've, I've found cartoons in which, say, ties, uh, neckties become a code, and colorful neckties indicate which characters in the cartoon are queer. And sometimes there's conflict between the queer characters and, and other characters. And we, as visual readers, uh, viewers of these cartoons, can then look at them and say, ah, I know which ones are queer because they're, they're wearing what were known at the time as coded fashions. And the artist knew that. So what, but what is the point of that? Is that about just being able to see yourself in the art or is it, why, why would something like that be done? I mean, some of it could be just playfulness on the part of the artist and getting one over and putting these things in. Uh, I think some of it was a strategy. I mean, my work is about homosexuality and capitalism. So I'm really interested in how um, how queerness, how homosexuality is being sold or used for profitable gain in the 20th century before the partial decriminalization of homosexual acts in this country. I do British history. 
Um, and so I think that there was also in this magazine a, a clear strategy of trying to play to multiple audiences without alienating either one of them and saying to both ostensibly heterosexual audiences, this is a magazine for, uh, for men interested in manly consumption. And that was a new thing at the time in the 1930s to address men in that way, in that tone, but also recognizing that consumption was potentially queer and saying, hmm, there's, there's, there's men out there that transgress gender and sexual expectations, but they've also got money. So how can we signal to them that we want them to read the magazine too? Similar themes can also be found across advertising around the same period. Looking at artists working in the United States, Justin tells me about the illustrator J.C. Leyendecker, who created covers for the Saturday Evening Post and made advertisements for many major brands, including Kellogg, Palmolive Soap, the Boy Scouts, and several branches of the U.S. military. We know that he was a queer man. We know that his partner, Charles Beach, was the model for the, the famous Arrow Collar Man, who was massively famous in the, in the 20s. Uh, and 30s in the States, the Arrow Collar Man, this fictional character in the advertisements, received fan mail. He was so popular. And, and he actually was based on Leyendecker's uh, partner. But what's interesting in Leyendecker's work is this, is this is explicitly commercial. These are advertisements for Gillette, for Kuppenheimer Coats. They're covers of the Saturday Evening Post, of Collier's, really like as mainstream as you can possibly get. And we start to see these codes again. Again, red ties appear. Red ties were a code in the States for queerness. We see uh, people interacting in the advertisements in really interesting ways. So if you if you look at some of Leyendecker's advertising images that include, say, groups of men and women, if you look at the sight lines of many of the men, they're looking at other men and the women are completely being ignored. In recent years, there have been exhibitions highlighting the works of queer artists, women, black artists, and other groups that have often been marginalized within art discourse. Justin says that in thinking about future exhibitions, it would be good to see shows that can better explore the layered identities of artists in an intersectional way. Not just exhibitions, but other kinds of cultural productions as well that look at um, different, different groups of artists, different groups of people, whether that's um, say, queer artists, black artists, female artists, uh, uh, migrant artists, any of these, any of these groups that, um, that may be shown, I think we have to move forward to think intersectionally and think not just about separating them all out, but what happens when we get a black lesbian artist or we get a, a migrant trans artist or we get a queer person of color as the subject of a piece of artwork. What happens when we get these things intersecting? And that's, that's still not really happening. And I think that's something we're still working toward, both in terms of bringing pieces together, but also recognizing historically why some of those things might not actually exist in an historical context, what, what limited, say, people of color from being artists whose art was recognized, valued, and preserved from earlier periods, or queer artists that might not have been um, uh, recognized as creating valuable art, or might not have been mainstream in a way that allowed their art to be recognized, bought, and preserved by museums and private collections. There's all kinds of things that economically, socially, and culturally marginalized groups of people in the past, especially when we think intersectionally, that then prevents us from having ready access and easy access to material that exhibits their existence and illuminates their existence.
Many thanks to my guest, Justin Bangry, for such a fascinating discussion. You can find him on Twitter at Justin Bangry, where he shares information about his upcoming events and talks on queer history. To see images related to today's discussion, you can head over to artuk.org. Thanks for listening, and please join us again next time.